morning, everyone. It's Monday, January 23rd, and this is the 35th episode of the NX Wealth Management SWAT podcast. In studio with me right now are Jack DeRoche, trader. Morning. And then Jason Cooper, research analyst and all-around tall guy. (laughs) Morning. How's it going? And then uh, finally, our chief investment strategist, Todd Voigt. Good morning. Todd, lead the way. Well, we usually start this off, and actually, I don't know if a lot of people know it, but this SWAT podcast was your idea. It was my yeah. idea, and I was I, I like listening to you all talk. I don't know what you're saying sometimes. Right. That's why I like about the Swan Podcast <laughs> is if you can break it down for me in, in ways that uh, that w- that way I can approach the headlines as I see them. Right, it'd be generally helpful. So pretend I am who I am, a dumb guy. What does no, this no, What does this all mean that. to me? <laughs> well, what's what I like too is that it's forward looking. Speaking of forward looking, upcoming this week, I'd like to just go over real quick some of the economic data coming out. It doesn't have to be next week or this coming week, but we got leading economic indicators coming out. Kind of a rule of thumb there is depth, duration, and diffusion. Three things that are important that tell you if you got three and a half percent decline in that index over a six month period you're heading into recession. You got some PMI, manufacturing durable goods, GDP, first reading for Q4. This is important because last June, sketching out the future track of the economy, which ties in, of course, to the market, we projected that, if you remember last June, we're coming off of two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, and it was technically a recession. That wasn't a recession in the good old-fashioned recession we know and love. That was just a technicality. The real issue was we're going to come into the fourth quarter with positive GDP and then we go into recession. That was projected back in June by us. Now, with that said, this GDP report coming out this week is the first report, and there's always three of them, end of every month for the previous quarter. That fourth quarter is going to be a positive reading. Okay, it doesn't mean we're out of the woods. It's just reflecting what we expected anyway, third and fourth quarter positive GDP. April 30th or thereabouts will be the first reading on the first quarter. That's the one that's not going to be pretty. And neither will subsequent GDP reports if forecasts are correct. Worth saying. But that takes us right into strength. And Jack? Yeah, so strength we've been looking at is the reopening in China. So Chinese A shares have been up almost 30% since rumors began of the reopening in Q4 of 22. This has been a major benefit to the EM indices that have been disproportionately skewed to the region. And similarly, copper has been up 25% in industrial commodity used in housing and autos. And coupled with that, the London Metal Exchange, their inventories have been at their lowest levels in five years. So you're seeing really strong demand for the commodity due to growth, China and the Asia Pacific region in general. And then at the same time, there's low inventory. So that should support price pressure to the upside. Exactly. And moving into the second strength we have here, energy crisis in Europe, not as bad as we feared. Mild winter coupled with redirected natural gas exports seems to get us through the winter. So that's that's a nice tailwind to global growth. When you think about the economy overall or the global economy, you can almost think of it as a three-legged stool. You know, what you see in the United States, Europe, and, and China, and putting one of those economies into a recession really would have been a headwind to overall growth and overall global demand for commodities and any other type of thing that people tend to consume. Maybe it would be helpful to then turn over to another strength, which is global financial conditions. And I think one thing that many of our listeners might be surprised by is the fact that we're actually seeing financial conditions ease, especially in G6 balance sheets. So 
if you were to look at the summation of balance sheets for the G6 central banks, so PBOC, the UK, ECB, Fed, and Japan, I think there's maybe one more in there, maybe Canada, don't quote me on that. You would ex- I think many would expect that that number would be coming down as the Fed aggressively tightens and you hear about the UK tightening. But what we've seen starting actually in November was an inflection to the upside. And that's when big buying started coming out of Japan. And what caused that was their push of the peg from 25 basis points to 50 basis points. You really started to see their central, their balance sheet expand significantly in December. And when you think about why, well, at that time, prior to them increasing the peg, investors in JGBs really had currency risk. That just like investors in treasuries or any other bonds in, in the United States had currency risk when you looked at the fact that the yields were lower than the rate of inflation. When you say currency risk, it's to the foreign and holder of U.S. Treasuries. Exactly. So, so when you have a when you have an account summary coming every quarter or every year, you don't really see it as much when it's in the currency. But once the Bank of Japan allowed the peg to float or to increase from 25 to 50 basis points, then you started seeing pronounced sellers. And those were probably investors thinking, oh, now I don't just have currency risk, but I also have interest rate risk. And what you saw happen to the global central bank balance sheet is that started to inflect upwards towards the end of last year, really started to climb higher into January. And that's coupled with the China reopening. And at the same time, you have the PBOC also expanding their balance sheet. So there's actually easing going on from a global central bank perspective, despite what you hear from many financial pundits about raising interest rates. And that's a strength because? It's a strength because you're injecting liquidity into the global financial system. And we saw you know, the markets catch a bit and we were wondering, what is behind this? Because it seems like there's maybe something outside of economic fundamentals that are catalyzing this. We actually use gold and even to a degree Bitcoin as a gauge for global financial liquidity. So when those two things started to move in unison, it, it catalyzed a bit of a deeper research, and that's how he came across this data. Now, quick, can you comment on quantitative tightening, U.S. Treasury? Sure. So the other thing you could say is quantitative tightening has been happening in the background. Effectively, the Federal Reserve is allowing agency mortgage-backed securities and treasuries to roll off the balance sheet to the tune of about $95 billion dollars per month. That's a trillion dollars of tightening over the course of the year. But you also have had the TGA, which is a liability on the Fed's balance sheet, the Treasury General account, that has been decreasing. And when that goes down, reserves go up. So you've effectively had an administration of or an injection of liquidity into the system domestically as well. There's a researcher from Bank of America, Mark Cabana, and he calculated that since the Fed's QT program got underway last May, the balance sheet has shrunk by 460 billion, but the TGA has dropped by 422 billion. So that's almost completely offset the liquidity drain in our domestic system. Moving on to weaknesses, we're, we're kind of hung up in strengths. Which one of you guys want to take weaknesses? We've had a series of debt ceiling discussions that I would think anyone would characterize as weak. One of our macroeconomic research providers highlighted that the House is likely to send a large amount of discretionary spending cuts to the Senate, and that the Senate's going to reject that number. Now, the number that they flagged is $130 billion in discretionary spending, and that sounds massive until you realize that the interest expense on our debt is likely to increase from $700 billion to over a trillion dollars 
this year alone. So that's completely offsetting any potential large-scale discretionary spending cut. And you just look at what's going on, and everyone's focused on this discretionary spending, where clearly the problem is non-discretionary. So Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and then, of course, the interest expense on our debt. That's also a problem. When you have a period of inflation and the majority of your non-discretionary liabilities are indexed to the cost of living, I think Social Security costs are going to increase almost 9% on a year-over-year basis because they are indexed to inflation. Another weakness, economic data. Retail sales down. We talked about leading economic indicators in a negative trend. Production data weaker than expected. Where are we with the inversion of the yield curve? I know it's expected to be inverted for the whole rest of the year. Yeah, so an inversion of the yield curve has been a weakness we've been harping on for quite a while now. Right now, 122 basis points. It's gotten up to 130 basis points. Deepest inversion since the 1970s. Really strongly correlated indicator showing two recessions. So we're keeping our eye on that looking forward. Another weakness we want to get to is the dollar trending lower, losing its strength that it's had over the year. It's had a long bull run. Yeah, at least 10 years. Right? Yeah, exactly. And this is negatively correlated to emerging markets, which is why we've seen emerging markets see great returns lately. Just back up on that inversion, 130 basis points means 1.3% that short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. Exactly. That persists. Yeah, the three-month treasury. Yeah, the three-month treasury is yielding or more than the 10-year treasury. Right. Given that investors are, don't want to take risk on the long run, right. they want to get their yield in. When you got two-year bonds rolling off, you you know you you jump all over that 4.71 two-year treasury versus a, a four or three and a half now in a 10-year treasury. People jump all over that one and two-year, but at the end of that one or two-year, that 4.7 treasury, it may be three percent. That's known That's as how, reinvestment risk. Right. So that wild swing in the short end is like a dog's tail. The one point I want to mention about that, so if that's the case, and let's just use round numbers, if we have 4% that we're getting off of treasuries and they go down to 3% two years from now, and you do it another two years, what's your average for those four years? Three and a half. So it's not the end of the world type of thing, but the investors got to be aware that because of the inverted nature of the yield curve, the opportunity actually might be in that longer term tenures. Go and get the tenure because that one and two year could be dropping to two and a half percent if we go into a hard landing. They lock in your high yield out 10 years right? Uh, before we see peak rates starting to fall. Right. Uh, dollar, you mentioned trending lower. That's been on a course to trend lower since October. And as Jack mentioned, it's positive for emerging markets. So um, you'd mentioned that the uh, the yield curve is, I guess, as inverted as it's been in decades, right? Correct. You, Jason, had mentioned that there still is some liquidity going on. Does that mean that if that liquidity didn't exist, that the yield curve could actually be more inverted? I think that's definitely a possibility. Yeah, Jason, would it be more inverted? <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a lot of moving pieces, but one thing that I would consider is that when liquidity is injected into the system, there's then more demand for financial assets. If there's more demand for financial assets, you can look at it the other way too. Maybe they're taking that excess liquidity and locking in longer duration securities because there's an increased probability of a recession that's driven by the inversion of that yield curve. A, I, it's, it's, it's very hard to conceptualize what, how money would flow because of that though, but I think that it's definitely catalyzing a bit under under I, gold. You asked a, a really good humbling question and, and the answer is that I think it actually would be more inverted if it wasn't for the 
the liquidity coming into the system. Now, that doesn't last for long. It's a temporary type phenomena, inverted yield curves. Normal yield curves has the short end of interest rates lower than the, the longer end. How do we go from inverted to normal? Well, that means either short-term rates got to come down hard or long-term rates got to go up. With inflation on the descent, sequentially, I know year on year it seems relatively high, but it's been coming down sequentially. It's more likely that longer term rates will still hang around where they are if the base case scenario of inflation leveling out at 4% sticks. That means the short end is going to likely come down to bring that yield curve back to normal. we got to get on to opportunities real quick. And I'll just mention that in the opportunities, I wanted to get this in there. The technicals start becoming more important in how the market's trading than the fundamentals. We're at a point that happens just about in every cycle where the market starts rallying as the economy's still descending. Tell me where the bottom of the economy is going to be. Where's the worst part of the economy? The unemployment north of 4%, job openings plunging. Is that summer? Is that fall? Well, then back up six, nine months and you'll find the bottom of the market. Okay, now in V-shaped bear markets, it was a three month difference. Market bottoms in March and starts rallying. The economy bottoms in June. What's going on in between? Well, the economy's just, you know, just deteriorating and the market's rallying. It always confuses people, but it's because the market's looking ahead. By June of this year, the market's looking in the 24, and then more political things start coming in. So t the technicals, and that one thing I want to mention real quick f on behalf of the investment team, you know, there's fundamentals, valuation, and trading. Trading is a part of technical analysis. The vast majority, three-quarters of it or whatever, you use to get an idea of what's going on in the market. You're not using it to predict prices. But there's a trading part of it. And that trading part of it can become more important, and, and that's coming to the forefront now as the economy's deteriorating, the markets rally. When does the market rally? And how do you know when the market rallies without your neighbor telling you six months from now, hey, you know, the bottom of the market was in March. So, and we're really good at trading. And the reason I say that is you watch any of these business broadcasts and they talk about technical analysis, you think they're on another planet. But they also make the mistake of looking in, at companies in isolation and how they're trading. We look at indicators, you look at the market first and you look at, your particular stocks after all you're seeing is the market and the stock price changing there's a way to extract the market out of what's going on with the shares of that particular company to know what uniquely is going on with that company that's important garp what do you, um jason i'll leave that to you sure so one area where we see an opportunity is growth at a reasonable price um over the last year value just really decimated growth from a performance perspective. If you look at it from a statistical lens, you know, NASDAQ underperformed the S&P by 2.3 standard deviations. That happens about 1% of the time. Whenever you have underperformance to that magnitude, you can be sure that something's going to start looking relatively attractive. And we're seeing growth names that have a continuous growing stream of earnings. So they, they are generating real earnings. They're not some stocks that maybe the earnings will happen 10 years from now. They have them, they've been growing them for decades. You know, maybe the growth rate is 15 to 20% higher than the market. And there's valuation opportunities there. You know, um, Trevor Narges um, looked at relative valuation and takes the Z score showing statistical significance of 
the relative valuation favoring growth. And that's that that ties in with that recovery in stocks. And there's a robust rally somewhere out there in the midst of economic deterioration. And it's going to be led by growth companies. You see that, you'll start seeing that. We'll pick up on that rather quickly. Yeah, exactly to your point. Some of these companies are able to grow during periods of recession. So even if you have the economy deteriorate, my best guess would be that most of them still generate positive earnings growth in a period where that becomes more scarce. And then you also have the dissipation of the 10-year yield rising on the treasury. So as that comes down, because these companies are valued on distant cash flows, that also becomes less of a headwind. So you have some nice tailwinds now for growth stocks or growth at a reasonable price. Well, while we're talking about earnings for growth stocks, maybe we can just talk about earnings for the overall market. And for the fourth quarter, the earnings for the S&P is projected to decline 4.6%. If you were to take energy stocks out of the market, I think it would have been closer to 8%. And then you also have a backdrop of a 6% inflation regime. So real earnings are probably down closer to 13%. You've had five companies report negative guidance and two positive. And the energy sector, it's the largest contributor to earnings over the last year. And if they were excluded, the index would have grown at negative 8.8%. So <laughs> not exactly the best earnings season. No, exactly. And Energy prices have been largely contributors to the energy sector, creating all that profit. And coupled with that increased involvement with the U.S. and Russia and Ukraine, the Biden administration is finally starting to concede that Ukraine may need the power to strike the Russian sanctuary, even if this is a move that's going to raise the risk of escalation. Defense names have been recently selling off based on the prospect of reducing discretionary spending in the area, but the prospect of war could see this reverse could actually, you know, it's a threat, but it could actually be an opportunity for a lot of the defense names that we track. And then I'd say the last threat we were talking about technicals and Todd, Todd loves moving averages. (laughs) I say sarcastically, but there's the 200 day moving average. It's been a source of resistance for the market. We've tried to break over it six times. We're close to it again. And it's just this threat until we're able to get through it, at which point, I think from a technical perspective, the market's going to start to look a lot better. Right. And, you know, th- the point of that is that you anticipate what others are going to do because it's there's such widely watched indicators. And I always said 200-day moving average, it's, it's a moving target. All right. Don't take it in isolation to trade off it. It just gives you an idea of what the crowd might be thinking, and it pushes a share price above a 200-day moving average, you can anticipate more investors piling in. The one thing I wanted to mention on a technical analysis side and trading is we actually have low turnover. We keep the turnover down. We're not buying and selling all the time, but we have this astute understanding of trading and when to move in and out over years, not days. Yeah, so let's go back over the headlines. When we talk about strengths, Jack, you had the strengths. What would be our headline strength? So central bank liquidity is increasing, um, and along with that, Chinese opening, reopening. And our headline weakness? I guess you could say that Congress is kind of fiddling with the debt ceiling while our, our deficit burns. And our headline opportunity? And you're looking at me, so I'll throw out growth at a reasonable price. Uh, who doesn't buy growth at a reasonable price? Growth at a reasonable <laughs> price. And our headline threat. Let's call it earnings. That is your SWAT podcast for Monday, January 23rd. Tune in next week. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week.
Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management, LLC, nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.